at KPMG to release the 2019 Change Readiness Index. Uh, I've been really proud to be associated with the Change Readiness Index and its other launches. Um, I think it's a very important product. I think you'll understand why as you, as you learn about it. Um, I think indices are really important uh, conversation starters, and I think they're a spur and a catalyst for change. I'm really grateful to have my friend uh, Laura Frigenti here, who's the Global Head of International Development Assistance Services Institute at KPMG, a longtime friend of CSIS, a former head of the Italian Aid Agency, a senior official at the World Bank Group, and a, and a friend of mine. Um, so I'm going to turn the floor over to Laura to present the Change Readiness Index, and then we're going to have a panel discussion. So Laura, please either come on up or, or speak from the, speak, speak, please come on up. Yep. Yeah, we're going to show a short video first. That's right. Roll the tape. No country is immune to change. Countries must be prepared to deal with sudden shocks and long-term trends. Understanding just how prepared a country is can help policymakers, NGOs, investors and development agencies make better decisions when it comes to managing change. With this in mind, KPMG have developed the Change Readiness Index. Using data from 140 countries, the tool gives insight into how a country may strengthen its readiness for change. Built on the three pillars of government, enterprise and people and civil society, the CRI can help to prioritise action, identify trends and see who is already on track. In this year's index, Switzerland is ranked number one for the second time running. 28 of the top 30 countries are high income and Malaysia rises into the top 30 for the first time. The tool can also help identify how countries, including the most vulnerable, can better prepare to meet the challenges of the Sustainable Development Goals. Climate change is a use case in point. The true cost of global warming, rising sea levels and deforestation is measured in lives as well as dollars. The world is mobilizing, but the challenges are complex. Building a future resilient to the effects of climate change is more effective than simply reacting to it. It requires complex cooperation across all sectors. Government policy which shapes innovation, unlocking capital and long-term investment and infrastructure through to community engagement and local decision-making. Change is a certainty. Being prepared for it is a choice. Thank you, Dan, and thanks everybody for being here today. This is a 
very important moment for us because the official launch of the CRI for our team closes a very long period of preparation and uh, uh, you know getting ready for this report. So this is the moment of truth uh, to see whether really this is something that is an important contribution to the global discussion on uh, uh, big topics around uh, global development. And I want to thank uh, Dan and his team for making it possible for us to be here today. There is no place like CSIS that feels like home for me in Washington, D.C., so I'm absolutely ecstatic to be here. Uh, as I was saying, the Change Readiness Index is a long and complex product. Uh, this is the fifth issue that KPMG uh, is publishing, and uh, it is the result of multiple interactions around a whole sorts of data, of primary data, secondary data, and the intersection of those. I am not really going to spend a lot of time on this, even if I am sure that Washington being Washington, there are lots of people that may be interested on that, and so I invite you to reach out to uh, any of us, myself, or any of the members of our team, if you really want to have a better understanding about the data set, how it is uh, you know, elaborated, and how basically feeds into the formulation of the uh, index. But we are not going really to spend too much time on that. What I want to do uh, today is basically, and I know that Dan has only given me 10 minutes, so I'll make sure that I stick to that, is to uh, basically uh, spend time on three things. The first one, why we think that this is important. Uh, why is it important to focus on change? And why is a company like KPMG investing so much time and so much resources in putting this index together and has continued to do doing so uh, you know, over years. The second is what is special about this particular CRI compared to previous CRIs, and then some of the results and some of the conclusion uh, moving forward. So let me go very, very quickly. The <coughs> CRI was initially discussed uh, in 2010. The first launch of the CRI, of the inaugural CRI, happened in 2012. Then the, uh, you know, the report was modified and perfected and has been going through several issues uh, with expansion of number of countries, refinement of methodologies, and I think that in this one, 2012, 2019, uh, we have reached the peak of covering 140 countries, and uh, uh, I will provide further detail on that. What is the change readiness? What is the definition of readiness for change? Is the capability of country agents, and you will see later on that we identify three main pillars, government, private sector, and public enterprises, and people, uh, and civil society, is their capability to manage, to respond, and to prepare for change. And why is that that we think that this is important? And I think that this is one of the points that I really would like uh, you know, to spend some time on. I think in our work uh, as, as a company, KPMG, 
uh, advises and interacts all with all sorts of uh, actors and players, public sector, government, companies, financial sector actors, private sector, civil societies, etc., etc. And obviously, one of the things that is at the core of what we are trying to, to do with them is to make sure that they reach a point of performing at their best, that they are at their most effective, that they are their most efficient uh, in terms of using their resources and achieving their objectives. And one of the things that we have seen is that what makes the big difference, the big differentials, is whether they are able to anticipate and be ready for change rather than being run over by change as it happens. And this is something that is particularly critical now because change has always been a very important feature of human history. We have changed and improved and adjusted to change. But the pace of this change in previous centuries was much slower. So the intrinsic ability of any agent to actually adjust to change was somehow, didn't need to be so much on their toes as we need now. What we have seen in terms of changes, and I think about you know, a topic that I know better and I'm passionate about, like labor market, for example, and uh, <clears throat> You know, the, the, the changes that uh, new technologies, artificial intelligence have introduced uh, in production, productivity is the way that industry is organizing, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that we have seen in the past 20 years are so incredible and so fast paced that either an actor is capable of, uh, you know, anticipating these things, or otherwise you end up, unfortunately, being in the loser column, in the column of those who struggle to adjust, which, uh, you know, has so much negative, uh, you know, results on themselves, their ability to survive, their ability to continue contributing to society and the objectives that they uh, have put for themselves. So we really think that ultimately this change readiness is uh, a very critical, uh, it's a very critical element in the ability to be successful, to be efficient, to be effective. And so what we are trying to do with the Change Readiness Index is to measure the ability of countries, but not limiting only on what the government, public sector, and public policy does, but also to look at all the other key players, private sectors, civil society, and communities at large, to be able to actually uh, adjust to change. Why is this Change Readiness unique? Well, first of all, because unlike many other indexes that are mainly focusing on the outputs. This one is focusing on the inputs. I would like to say from my uh, past World Bank that it's focusing on, on the policy, so it's focusing on, on what countries set themselves to do, um, but obviously because it also embraces other actors like industries and civil society, it goes beyond, beyond that. But it doesn't measure only the results. And it fills a gap in current industry literature, data, and metrics. Why the change readiness is important, I think that I have mentioned that. And I was actually uh, very uh, impressed years ago when I met uh, a minister for future, which uh, is, I think, a unique feature that United Arab Emirates, they have. I initially thought that that was the title of a tale from Luis Borges, because it could only be that. But he actually has a real job. And when I asked him what the job is, the job is exactly this, to prepare his country for change and make sure that 
the country is ready to scout what's happening in the market, in industry, in politics, in global environment, etc., etc., absorbs it, absorb it before it is actually implemented and make sure that the country gets ready. So I am not advocating that each and every country should have a minister for future, but for sure what we are advocating is that each and every important actor should really start thinking about the future before the future runs over you. As I said, I mean, I'm not going to spend much time on the data. Uh, the report is based on more than 125 secondary data variables, 25 primary survey questions, and 1,400 country experts have been directly surveyed. As I said, there are three pillars, enterprise, government, and people in civil society. And you can see uh, in the columns below what are the type of issues that are being surveyed, the kind of questions that are being asked. Um, <clears throat> what is different in this 2019 CRI? Well, first of all, some things on the data. We have added eight additional countries, both developed and developing. We had, unfortunately, for the circumstances, uh, to drop two countries, Syria and Venezuela, because of the lack of data. And so it was impossible. And then we have decided to actually focus on climate change as a use case. This is something new and different from previous CRI, which actually would only present the data without having any application. Because in reality, uh, the big um, point for us in, in investing so much in this resource is how this is applied. Is this a tool that is useful? Is this something that you know government take into account uh, when they are thinking about what kind of policies, for example, example, they should, uh, you know, be focusing on, that industry takes into account when they decide where to make their investment, that civil society takes into account when they actually think about what kind of advocacy in a particular context they need to have. And so we thought that among the so many issues and so many areas that, uh, you know, was important to have a focus on, that the one that we wanted to use this year, and maybe because we all were inspired by Greta and the many uh, young people that we saw in the squares and in the street just claiming a better future for themselves was climate change. There is no other topic, there is no other issues at this particular point that really presents so much need for change in terms of not only of policy but also programmatic actions and where really countries seem somehow to be struggling getting ready and getting their acts together. So we thought that having this report like coming out on this particular uh, you know, set of issues would have helped countries also focus on this particular topic. Uh, what are the findings of uh, this year report? And none of this is something that is going to be a wow revelation that you probably uh, would have not intuitively, uh, you know, reach yourself. Uh, we have tried to basically find answer to these three sets of questions. How does exposure to climate risk from weather events and sea level rise vary by country and who is climate ready? What are the broad policies and institutions that can be used to benchmark climate readiness, what forward-looking roles for the private sector, government, and civil society in preparing for climate risk. And here is the first, uh, you know, findings. 
that unfortunately what we are seeing is that, as you can see very clearly from this, the countries that are more at risk are also those that are less prepared. And that is, again, it's intuitive, but if you think about Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, these are the countries where we do see the largest amount of climate-related shock, and these are the countries that unfortunately have uh, a lot of, I mean, the institutions that are more fragile, the structures that are more fragile, both in public, private, and non-governmental sectors, and so really they have a kind of a double jeopardy. They are hit the most, and when they are hit, they actually don't know how to respond. The other thing that, again, uh, is not a wow revelation, but I think you all knew, is that if you go on this side, so the part where um, <clears throat> the countries that are more prepared, uh, you know, are located, you will see that between China and the United States, they account for, uh, you know, less, just slightly less than 50% of carbon emission and, uh, uh, you know, causes of climate uh, pollution. And so that is also something that it's very important uh, for policymakers to uh, have in mind uh, when they are thinking about what kind of public action they actually want to put in place. But the one thing that I think it's important, and I'm delighted that in the panel that follows up we are going to have, uh, you know, colleagues from the World Bank, uh, because I really think that having this information about the high risk in terms of exposure and the fragility of the institutions, for example, in Sub-Saharan Africa, is really something that I feel could be a driver of their decision on what kind uh, of programs they do want to, to finance, uh, you know, in this type of country. The second thing is, and you see that the dark blue represents the low-income countries, the light blue, the upper-middle income, we have left from this table out the high-income countries because they are on a league uh, of their own. But what are the gaps? There are significant policy gaps in terms of infrastructure and how these infrastructure are built with a sustainable concept uh, under them uh, in the capacity of the government to do strategic planning and horizon scanning in the strength of public administration and uh, in their were being able to work together with the state business and in the ability to uh, you know generate revenues on the fiscal side and to have an appropriate budgeting uh, process on the other side so this gap really demonstrate very uh, clearly that the countries, the, 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 upper in, the upper middle income countries, they are more ready to respond because they have invested more in things that actually have an impact on uh, this type of preparedness. And then uh, an interesting data, even this one is not going to be something that you didn't know, on civil society. Civil society has a very important role to play. And uh, I, uh, you know, sometimes I think that when we think about readiness, we mostly think about government and policies. We think about private sector and investment. We do not necessarily think how important it is that civil society both has capacity built, but also has a very important advocacy role in each and every country. Civil society needs to keep governments on their toes when things are not going the way in which they should be going. And so what you see here is that 
in uh, uh, environments that are higher income, like northern, northern and southern and western Europe, civil society is much better organized, is much more uh, capable of actually have a voice on these particular issues and therefore to influence the public debate than it is in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, pretty much 50% of the score. And that is also something that I think is very important. I have been personally, uh, you know, been a very strong advocate of the fact that really development uh, in a country means that you do have civil society that is strong, strengthened, and organized, and that has really a voice vis-a-vis -vis the government. And so that is also, uh, I would say, an information that is important and interesting for all those that uh, may have the authority and the ability of having an impact on that. So uh, some of the conclusions and the implication, as I said, I mean, the low and middle income countries face double jeopardy when it comes to climate change. They have a higher risk from the negative impact and a lower capacity to implement climate ready policies and institutions. But at the same time, that wealth doesn't protect countries from climate risk. Rather, climate events tend to have greater economic cost in developed countries, obviously because the quality of the infrastructure is higher and more expensive, and so the loss is, is higher, but greater social cost in developing countries. What we have seen, for example, recently in Mozambique, just to think about the latest disaster, is that uh, the absolute value of what was destroyed wasn't dramatically significant. It was incredibly significant for each individual household. So if you lose your source of income and there is not a system in place that helps you to, uh, you know, immediately, there is not a safety net system that helps you to get back on your toes, that works as a springboard, then that is really most likely something that is going to determine your being below the poverty line pretty much your entire life and has an intergenerational impact that uh, is pretty devastating. And then the third thing where we would like, uh, you know, the, the, the people who are going to use this report to focus is that financial sector, technology, infrastructure, and access to information are some of the key factors that drive climate readiness as seen by comparing developing economies with greater climate risk factor and more climate ready countries at similar income level. So that if in a situation of budget constraints where there are limits to how much a country, uh, you know, how many resources a country can use, these are the kind of things that actually have the greatest and the most immediate impact on this type of issues. Using the index, which is what matters the most to us, and I hope that in the Q&A session that we are going to have after the panel, that actually uh, the audience will give us some, uh, some ideas about uh, whether you think that this index is useful and how you think that this index can be used uh, and how would you uh, use it in your daily life. Washington is a city of practitioners on global development, so no better place uh, where to have a kind of a, a test on, uh, on the usability of this index. The, country the change readiness index is intended to help country stakeholders take action to achieve sustained growth, build resilience, and cope with future domestic and global developments. It is also help, uh, intended to help country stakeholders to take action and stimulate debate, 
help and inform government policy, facilitate benchmarking, identify potential vulnerabilities associated with change, and strengthen the overall understanding of the determinants of change readiness. I also want to say a final thing. We had an interesting conversation uh, just until a few minutes ago on the use of different indexes. And while it is true that particularly on the side of government, the things that immediately catches their attention is where they are compared to their neighbors. And uh, I remember that painfully when I was responsible for the Central America Department that the only concern that they had is, is Guatemala better than Costa Rica and Costa Rica is better than Nicaragua and so on and so forth. That is not really the point. The point is, is Nicaragua better in 2017 than it was in 2015? Is, so it's really, it's a tool for individual countries to understand how their progress is assessed vis-a-vis -vis their own situation, which is unique in the case of every individual country. And then the final thing that I want to say is that um, what really emerges from uh, you know, the report when you go and look in depth at the success in the different pillars of different countries is that, as I said, each situation is unique. But if there is one commonality that one can really, uh, you know, that can emerge from this work is that countries where the three pillars work better together, work in a more harmonious way, where there is a better dialogue between public, private sector, and civil society. Those are the countries that find the better answers, those are the countries that fare the best, and those are the countries that more significantly rise in the index year after year after year. So that dialogue, again, is a very important point, and I am uh, you know, raising this with all those that are in a position to, uh, you know, that are agent for this dialogue to happen to make sure that they also, uh, you know, try to stimulate this conversation and this interaction among different actors. Thank you very much for being with us today. You're going to join us at the, sure. sit at the end of the, on the other end of the panel. Yeah, let me get the slide, that, that conclusion slide. I really like that. Can I have the other panelists join me up here? Yeah. JJ, sit next to me. Uh, Julie, sit, sit here. And Alexa, sit here. Thank you. Put you in the middle. JJ, sit here. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. We've got a really interesting panel um, to help us uh, unpack this, uh, looking at indices and the change readiness index and what the ch how we should think about the change readiness index in the larger, in the context of, um, of, of uh, global development, of climate, on disasters, and uh, as well as I think there were several things that came up in the pregame that we did on conflict and food. And how should we look across indices? Because I think it's an important contribution, especially if you add it to look at other indices as a, as a dashboard. Mahmoud Mahildin used a very good term for that. Thank you for, and thank you for being here, Mahmoud. Um, so well, look, we've got some very uh, thoughtful folks. We have JJ Messner, who's the executive director for Fund for Peace. And the Fund for Peace has an indice index as well. Uh, and I'm going to start with you, um, JJ. You've got this Fragile States Index. How do, how do organizations use your index? Uh, how should we think about indexes more broadly? And what do you think of this? So thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Dan. I mean, first of all, 
Um, just a quick bit of background. Uh, at Fund for Peace, we've been producing the Fragile States Index for the last 15 years. Uh, I'm sure many of you are probably familiar with it. We, uh, we assess 178 countries every year on 12 indicators of, of fragility. And what we've found uh, over 15 years is that the, the way in which the index is used uh, varies widely and there's also a, a certain level of uh, uh, unintentionality. There's a lot of stakeholders who use uh, the index in ways that, uh, that we would never have uh, expected. Uh, what we find is that uh, governments uh, will use it for their own metrics and that's not only looking uh, inward domestically, but also governments that are active uh, in the foreign aid sphere uh, and development will use uh, indices like the Fragile States Index uh, as a basis for um, not only understanding where uh, interventions uh, could, be, uh, uh, could be worthwhile, but also to measure progress over time. So in a sense, uh, if you look at the trends of indices, it, it's almost like monitoring and evaluation for, for countries. Um, we know that uh, the private sector uses it for, uh, uh, for understanding risk uh, and we also work with a number of the, uh, uh, the DFIs like IFC, African Development Bank, uh, Inter-American Development Bank on uh, how they approach uh, investment risk using uh, <coughs> metrics like these. And I should, I should caution, it's not about necessarily whether to invest in a particular country, uh, but more specifically how to invest in that country, where they should mitigate risk, so on and so forth. Um, but ultimately, we don't see the Fragile States Index as the, the end product of a discussion. We see it as the, the beginning. We see it as the platform for discussion where you can take those metrics and you can use that as the basis for uh, not only understanding the challenges but looking for the opportunities to, to address those. Um, as, far as, uh, as far as this index is concerned, I think that it's an important step in really moving more towards uh, this concept of resilience when we talk about uh, uh, this, uh, the concepts of fragility and capacity and weakness and strength but also readiness and I think that so long as indices have that, that practical applicability, I think that they're, uh, they're extremely useful as uh, uh, not only conversation starters, but setting out a roadmap for, uh, for transformational change. So just thinking about, you, you, when you get up in the morning, you think about conflict and trying to mitigate conflict as opposed to starting conflict. JJ, thank you for that. But how, how do you think about, if, if you look at sort of changing weather patterns or you look at uh, natural disasters, how does that come against the, 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 the things that you think about on a daily basis, which is uh, conflict mitigation and management and prevention? How does that come against your radar screen? Well, I think that insofar as uh, natural disasters can essentially affect all of us, some countries uh, are obviously more vulnerable. I think it's really interesting to take a couple of different examples of what we've seen in the Fragile States Index just in terms of how uh, of, of how shocks can affect yep. different countries. Yeah. So uh, over the last 10 years, uh, two of our uh, most worsened countries over that stretch have been South Africa and Mozambique. However, South Africa, as I think has been demonstrated, has a much higher level of resilience. And so it doesn't have an infinite level of resilience, but it is able to uh, absorb a lot of those shocks and, and that, that worsening over time, whereas Mozambique uh, I, I hate to characterize it as sort of a, a house of cards, but 
it's, it, it's a lot more vulnerable. So a shock like a cyclone is going to really impact Mozambique perhaps a lot more than, uh, than another country. And so that's, that's the issue of, uh, of vulnerability versus fragility. The other example I would show is when we look at uh, the issue of conflict and how, it, uh, and how it meets with concepts of either natural disasters or climate change, uh, I would look at, uh, uh, at West Africa right now. And if you're looking at uh, increased conflict uh, in a number of West African the countries. Sahel. Yeah, the Sahel between uh, farmers and herders, for example. A lot of that is driven by changing climatic conditions that's changing where grazing is able to occur. They are coming into conflict with, uh, uh, with, with pastoralists. And so you can see you can see that it's, it's like a domino effect of one thing leading to another. You don't necessarily need a climate uh, indicator specifically to show that. You have to put them all together in context to really understand the, the broader picture. So I think when we, particularly when we talk about there being multiple indices, I think it's important to not only look at what those indices are saying about countries over time, but place them next to each other so you can actually contextualize better and use the data streams from each of them to inform that conversation. Thanks a lot. Julie, uh, Julie Danny, you're the practice manager of the Global Facility for Disaster Reduction and Recovery, GFDRR. Can we work on the Acronym. I know. Okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. World Bank. You're, but but what that means is is you're you're the you're the czarina for disaster reduction and recovery for the World Bank and helping countries manage that and providing I'm assuming advice and information and convening as well as helping work with practice managers at the bank as the largest development uh, player in the world and having sort of unique unique moral authority as the World Bank group. So thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. So. I, I'm an enormous fan of many of the intellectual products of the World Bank. I particularly adore the doing business indicators and uh, feel a strong sense of ownership, but that's not the only uh, knowledge products that the World Bank produces. So when you think about indices, and the World Bank produces indices, and you think about this index, or you think about other indices, just give me your take on sort of this index. Tell us about how it, how does it come across your radar screen in your day job. Tell us a little bit about your day job, and then are there other indices that you use or your clients use um, as they think about making decisions? So thanks for being here. Thanks, Dan. Um, and the funny acronym is a multi-donor trust fund, so uh, you're stuck lots, with it. Lots of partners, and we're stuck with it. But, yeah. Um, thanks for having us here. So yes, I mean indices. We the bank has a lot of experience with it. Certainly, always a public good for looking at the current state of play, and then also how to measure progress over time. Um, I when I look at this, I really like like two things about it. One, you said it's a conversation starter, which yeah. is absolutely true and really important. So what's the conversation that you want to start? So there's one that's a very high level conversation with the Minister of Finance, who's, as you said earlier, maybe worried about competition and rankings. But that ministry is also really concerned with the cost of borrowing, access to capital markets, and attracting private sector investment. So one conversation that you want to start is the connection between these sorts of ratings and how a government is, I don't know, doing roadshows on debt off debt, you know, to, when they're issuing bonds and markets. How do you connect this? What, what does the market think? Particularly as we see ESG investing on the rise, pension funds looking at these kinds of investment. What's the connection to the market? Um, and that connects to incentives, right? So if you can make a connection between the ranking 
the lower cost of borrowing, attracting private sector, then you've got a lot, nice big conversation. Another conversation is a practitioner level conversation. So, and we do a lot of that. I was in, um, in Geneva a couple weeks ago with the Small Island States mm. uh, Resilience Initiative Practitioners Network. So 40 people working in budget roles, in economic planning, um, public financial management. They care about these things as well, mostly because it's a peer network designed to help learn from each other and talk to each other about what can be done from a policy level perspective to, to move the bar. Um, so I think that, that peer comparators, establishing peer groups maybe in a region, maybe peer groups of countries that are exposed to similar sets of shocks, um, or are grappling with specific challenges like urbanization, countries that are dealing with the coastal resilience, FCV. You bring them together, you start the knowledge sharing and learning, and, and that's a fantastic power of this kind of information. Um, so as you said, the bank, we do a lot of this all the time. We're constantly trying to improve data measurement of things. One thing um, that we're starting to do is look at an improvement to resilient ratings for projects. So this is part of the recently announced uh, World Bank Group Action Plan on Adaptation and Resilience mm -hmm. that Kristalina Georgieva announced in January. We're really, first of all, trying to shift our funding to adaptation so that we try to achieve a goal of 50 billion over 2021 to 25, which would be a doubling of the last period. But also help countries look at adaptation, not, not just as an incremental cost, but how do you build it into systemic macroeconomic analysis, poverty analysis. Um, and one way we're looking at that is trying to develop a new rating system that tracks <coughs> our projects and our progress, looking at uh, two different things, resilience of that particular development investment and the resilience built through that particular investment. And we hope you know, to build on things like this and all the other partners in analysis and um, really continue to strengthen the base of knowledge of where we are in the current state because that tells us what we need to do to move and we need to move quickly. So are there, when you talk to governments, how, how do, are, there are, are, some of them are motivated in the sense that how do I com compare up to my neighbor? That does, that is a thing. Yes. That, is that true? Yes. Okay. Because I, I actually think it's an important spur. Now, some, sometimes it's not something that folks want to recognize, but I think it's one of the most, I think the reason the doing business indicators have been such an incredible successful product of the World Bank is, if, I've, if my national mythology, and I'll use that term, is, is premised on that the folks over the mountains are terrible people, and they are 50 points higher than me on the doing business indicators, that is an unacceptable reality. I cannot accept that. And how is this possible? And so sometimes they'll attack the index. And so how, yeah, how do, do you ever have that, do you ever have that <laughs> issue where people attack an index or attack intellectual products that you guys are doing at the bank? for things like that? Absolutely. All the time, <laughs> all the time, all the time. So I think, anyways, I, so I think, I actually think shame and national pride uh, and rivalry are all things that we, I think in sort of, let's call it the, the development world or sort of the technocratic expert community, we like to think doesn't exist. Well, I mean, anybody, you know, if anyone follows the World Cup or follows, you know, sport, um, you'll know that um, that actually does matter. So I actually think the genius of the doing business indicators was not only was it rigorous and done on an ongoing basis and with enough countries, but it force ranked countries. Now there have been several, there have been a couple of 
uh, product since then. There was some product on infrastructure where all the data was there, but somebody, someone at the Mahmood level said, we're going to just put the data out there, but we're not going to force rank it. I forget which one of this is. It's not in Mahmood's vice presidency. But, but I was like, OK, so where's the force ranking? And they said, well, you, you know, we, one of you think tanks can go and it's all there. Why don't you do it? They just didn't want the headache. This was another part of the bank. Didn't want the headache of, of dealing with angry shareholders who say, why, why am I number 32 when my blood enemy over the mountains is you know, you know, better than me? And so I, think, I actually think this issue of force ranking countries is very, very powerful and can be, it means also you create uncomfortable conversations for yourself. But I think it's, it's a very important service that the World Bank does. So um, keep doing it is all, is all I can say. So thanks, and thank you for being here. Okay. Alexis Bonnell is my favorite person at AID. I'm enormously grateful to you. Thank you, Alexis, for helping me out. You're the Chief Innovation Officer at the US Global Development Lab. You have this, if you uh, Google her, you can learn about how she got into the international development business. There's some very interesting, it has to do with a blackjack table. Isn't that right? There's a something very like interesting story. Yeah. Something like that, and that's how you ended up in Afghanistan. And right, there's a, there's a story at a, at a Monte Carlo. I'm very resilient, Dan. I'm right, very, very resilient. you are very resilient. And so you, on, on short notice, were willing to help me with this. Can you talk a little bit about, tell us about the, the Global Development Lab and, and being the Chief Innovation Officer, and how does how does that play into this conversation about resilience and in indices? Because I know AID has been a financier mm -hmm. of the doing business indicators when it was first stood up and sort of helping countries move up and down and providing technical assistance. But I know I've also invested in other sorts of indices and other sorts of knowledge products. So thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what's so exciting when I read the very last part of the conclusion and implication is that the three things that are the recommended area, so the financial sector, technology, infrastructure, access to information, those are really these dynamic connective tissue issues really between the sectors right and so a lot of what the lab and a lot of what USAID and other you know players in international development have really been able to do over the past few years is say what are those to us right are we going to actually put resources we're going to put uh, information we're going to put uh, learnings we're going to put technology we're going to change how we do business to be able to pursue those three categories of elements and I think what's so fascinating is that we're in such a dynamically different place now not just as aid but I think as an industry than where we were even five years ago. And part of that is because the nature of the dynamicness of the players involved. But I also think one of the things that I am most appreciative, appreciative of, of our you know, administrator is you know, really to have seen our industry kind of pivot to have this voracious appetite for information, for evidence, you know, for, and ultimately, let's call it what we hope it is, and that is business intelligence, right? We should be using business intelligence to make the best decisions around the investments and how we look to be helpful to people around the world. What I think was a really momentous change that was driven by these types, this, this confidence factor and um, indices and metrics was actually our administrator's desire and role and his, his vision to transform our North Star away from individual sectoral gains, which are really important, but ultimately to give us a new North Star, which is really about self-reliance, right? If the goal is ultimately, when you talk about the ultimate resilience, right? The ultimate resilience is self-reliance. And so I think this idea of being able to recognize that in all of our sectoral areas, we have to make huge strides, but to recognize that the definition of success, you know, is really that concept of self-reliance. And I think what was, I was especially proud of 
is that in going through and figuring out, well, what does that look like, Dan? What are the you know, metrics? What are the indices? Um, we actually stepped back and you know, created 17 different factors that we look at to help understand where someone might be in that journey of self-reliance. And what I'm most proud of in that is that we didn't make any of them up new. Right? We actually looked at the work that was done. And in fact, I looked and compared um, what KPMG had done and where some of our metrics were based out of. And we used some of the same sources. Right? And I think that's actually a really encouraging moment for us, that we've stopped kind of having to have everyone have their own special flavor and instead be able to say, wow, that was really great work. What can we learn from that? What can we grow on that? And the ability to combine that together to recognize and to respect each other is what I like to call special sauce mm. and figure out how do we bring that together to make a better ecosystem, to make better decisions. And I think you know, for us, in, in any instance, what we really look to do at the end of the day when we think about something like indices or metrics is really to help us get USAID staff, partners um, you know, on the same page to help us do four things. Number one, how do we plot the overall journey more intelligently to self-reliance? Number two, how does that inform our strategic decisions? Uh, number three, as we've heard already today, how do we drive the dialogue? And it's really important to understand we don't all have to agree, right? What matters is that we're having the conversation, right? What matters is that we're using the intelligence and the business insights. And then number four, ultimately, is you know, how do we see and where do we see opportunity for strategic transition? Because if we accept that someone is on this journey of resilience, right, is on this journey of self-reliance, there has to be moments, right, of progress, of pivoting, of transition, and being able to be intelligent around those. So those are the things that I'm excited about. I really appreciate that. I, you know, one of the things that I took away from, from the report and from the conversation is that we're going to need multi-stakeholder partnerships to make the sorts of changes that are going to be needed to get ready to be resilient but also that there are going to be breakthroughs in innovation, some of them technological, some others, that are going to be required both in terms of um, early warning, but, on also, but also in terms of preparing for and responding to some of the challenges that we're facing. So I suspect um, that's going to be more uh, work in your inbox at the, at the lab. Well, and actually, if I can pitch something right now at this moment, um, you know, if we're talking about being open to new information um, and that leading us, we also have to be open to doing business differently, right? And so if any of you have seen our recent acquisition and assistance strategy, there's a huge change around that, around co-creation, around being able to source these solutions yeah. from anywhere. You know, and one thing that I would highlight uh, that I was briefed on recently, just as an illustrative example, is a lot of times we think about enterprise just as big business. But one of the things that our work has really benefited from is the incredible, just the innovative solvers out there, the social entrepreneurship. And to give you one example of huge impact, we had funded something uh, a while ago called Zipline, which was in essence a drone delivery system. And what was so interesting is that, that that's a really complex, meaty thing. Explain what that business. is. It's so such a cool company. Essence, Sure, so Zipline is an innovator that in essence um, does drone delivery, so the drone doesn't actually have to land, it leaves kind of a, a hub, and it you know, can go out and can actually drop to very like specific a locations or with a parachute. Um, and in this case, uh, mainly they focus on emergency blood, vaccines, medical supplies. But what's so interesting is that in a very short period of time, not only have they navigated and credit to the Rwandan government for their vision around being resilient, how they might leverage technology and these different things. But right now, the, the Zipline drone delivery airport is the busiest airport in Rwanda. It has more flights a day. And what is important is you start to Amazing. think about a crisis, 
all of a sudden, the Rwandan government has come together with them to build a resiliency structure, right? If all of a sudden a road gets washed out, something has to get somewhere, imagine that you know, starting with a platform of that type of technology, what then can be put on top of it, right? What in addition to blood or vaccines can go? And so I just think that these are the things, it's, it's not just us as the donor community, these are things that these host country governments are already investing in, are already getting ahead of, and we're excited to be in the position to be keeping up. So, um, so z just just so everyone, so Zipline, many folks have probably heard of Zipline. So AID was an early funder yes. of Zipline. Okay, I always want to make sure that AID gets the credit because oftentimes <laughs> the, a lot of social innovations get funded by AID and then sometimes people forget to credit AID. Yes. So I just want to make sure we do a little PSA for, for <laughs> good old you, AID. Thank you, but we would definitely credit Zipline and the Rwandan government. But we appreciate yes. the kudos yes. early on. Yes, so, so I can think of there's this, there's this very famous think tank in Peru that gets 90% of its money for 35 years from AID and then you can't really, for a long, long time, it took a really long time for them to say, oh, and by the way, thanks AID for all the dough. So anyway, so that's, that's, that's what's prompting me. But let me just push a little bit further on Zipline for a second, which is, so what is Zipline? Zipline is drones to really rural areas that if you wanna get med HIV AIDS medicine or some other health stuff, you, you know, so 10 years ago, if we were having a conversation about how do we get to the last mile for sick people, there would be discussions about motorbikes, right? So there's an NGO in California, there's a great organization that does sort of like last mile on dirt, dirt bike motorbikes. I don't know what they're called, but Same you know those, those dirt biking motorbikes. Today, what you have is drones. We wouldn't have had this conversation five years ago. Mm -hmm. And so the first country zipline has been is in Rwanda. The second one is, do you know? I, I believe they're talking to... It's another African country. Ghana. Okay, there's another African country. The third country is the United States, yep. North Carolina. Yep. So there are innovations that happen in the developing world that can be applied to the United States. And so this is an example, we're talking about resilience and preparation. So some of it's health, some of it's emergencies, but you're now seeing Zipline's next mm -hmm. country is the US. Yep. So, so I think it's very appropriate that KPMG Laura is having this as a global conversation and thinking at not just wealthy countries and comparing sort of how that, so it's very appropriate that there's, it's a large spectrum of countries including the Switzerland's of the world with deep social capital, with multi-ability to work and have functioning states as well as poor countries and so I think it's, it's very appropriate. So Laura, so what, you know, what have you taken away from the comments? Well, you, you got, you've got a, a, a number of thoughtful comments in the pregame and you've heard some very thoughtful people. So what do you think, now that you're KPMG, what do you, what's your reaction to that? And then tell us, okay, having been in the, the, inf, the persuasion and influence business for a while, I know that you probably have to do a roach or do some other things. You've written a very important report. What are you gonna do with this? What is KPMG going to do with this going forward? But first, give me a reaction to what you've heard so far. Well, first of all, I don't know if everybody has been just incredibly polite, uh, but I haven't heard any negative uh, reaction to the report. I have heard some very constructive way of actually improving it and expanding it, and what is the next challenge, and this is the way in which uh, we also like to have this discussion internally. This is the reason why we are publishing it every two years. It takes us one year to think about what are we going to change for the next one and actually one year to implement it. But I think that you know the, the, the point of strength 
Uh, definitely that the report is global, uh, that the issues that are being uh, surveyed uh, across the three pillars are really broad. I mean, we have been you know, highlighting the things related to climate change this year. Two years from now is going to be probably something else we don't know. But we did want to have uh, an attempt of applying it to a particular challenge. Mm -hmm. And we thought that this was the challenge of the day. Uh, hopefully it will not be uh, that much of a challenge two years from now. Um, but I think that, and so to the point that Alexis was making and that you were also reinforcing, that um, each country has to learn from everybody else in a way that there is not a country that is having the perfect score uh, on everything. No. Even the Swiss of this world, uh, there are areas in which they are actually faring below other countries and where actually some good experiences from other countries uh, you know, will be helpful for them. So it is really helpful to go that. I think that um, I heard the message about, particularly in large federal countries, the need for trying to find a way of going subnational. That obviously presents challenges <laughs> in itself, and we are going to see how this can happen. We are preparing now the first deep dive on one country. The government of Morocco has asked us to actually mm. do a deep dive uh, on the data for Morocco, and so we'll see whether we actually manage to um, you know, put together a model that then can be easily replicated in other countries that want to go more in-depth for their own uh, set of issues. Um, I feel that, uh, you know, the way that we see it, and obviously I am looking at this from the, from the point of view of KPMG, that is not, KPMG is not like a, a policy authority, so we don't sit the other side of the table as the World Bank does, or USAID mm -hmm. does, telling countries what they have to do. We are generally brought in uh, by someone who has a problem and is looking for solutions. Uh, and so they bring the experts. And that for us is a very good way of finding in one consolidated piece the kind of things that actually have worked or have not worked, and to basically present the client with, an, with a range of options to understand this will be what we advise that you follow to be able to get to this particular result. So in this sense, the, the, uh, the use for us is, is uh, how can I say, is to enhance the effectiveness of you know, the clients that we are serving. And I think that has been so far uh, you know, very helpful. And it's, as I was saying in the session that we had before, has been a good instrument to guide some business decision. I mean, there is change readiness in a way uh, is a very, very important element of riskiness, of lack of riskiness in a particular country. A country that you know, has structure in place that are capable to weather shocks uh, is a country where you do want to invest better than in a country where uh, you do see enormous elements of fragility. So that's another part that I think has been important. And uh, well, in terms of what is going to be the roadshow, the report is going to be launched globally, obviously. Um, we do have a pretty uh, large uh, network of KPNG teams everywhere, pretty much everywhere in the world. Yeah. And so we do expect that uh, you know, they will also contribute to this particular uh, you know, to launch of this thing. And also that they 
will uh, um, try to see what the meaning is for their particular context, for their particular country context. But I have written down the invitation that I have received to Paris and Manila, and I'm going to follow up on that. Exactly, <laughs> absolutely. That was my hope, exactly, good. Well, I, there's a lot of smart people in this room I want to hear from, so please, I'd like to, I'm happy to call on folks if I don't see raised hands, because I've got at least that. So I want to hear from David Baxter, I want to hear from this gentleman with a great tie. Um, other, uh, uh, okay, um, this woman back here, and then we'll get to you as well. But first, my friend David Baxter over here. Please, everyone, briefly identify name, organization, and, and just keep it brief. Good morning. Um, my name is David Baxter, and I'm a senior advisor to the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe's Resilience Center that's been established in New Orleans in the United States. Um, one of the things that I've noticed there are a lot of indices that are out there, and in many ways, ind indices can actually serve as deterrents to development because um, the, the business sector or people read about these indices and then they immediately avoid all the countries that have got bad scores and focus on those that have good scores. What can be done internally in the countries that say have got less than satisfactory scores to get them to not just at the national level, because you know it's easy for big policymakers and government officials to say we support these ideas, but at the subnational level, which you mentioned, to get these ideas, best practices, mm -hmm. etc., filtered down, so that the indices are revised in an effective way, and that best practices become ingrained within the country. So it's a very long question, but I okay, hope it so makes don't, sense. Okay, so just don't focus on the gifted and talented kids, right? Okay. So this gentleman here with a great tie. Thank you very much. My wife got it for me, so That's she gets good. all the credit. There you go. Absolutely. Uh, good morning, everybody. I'm um, Dalai Fazio with uh, Deloitte, and I want to commend the authors of this, this great report. Very well done, uh, very thorough. Um, Two-part question. Uh, first, first for, for Julie, um, you know, the, the bank is really a knowledge repository, and I remember a few years ago there was a phenomenal um, report put out called Unbreakable, which really focused on mm. the kind of disaster um, risk mitigation mm. recovery efforts and you know, that that's had a legacy maybe I wanted to know you know what you viewed maybe this report's legacy would be and, and in general the, the legacy of knowledge knowledge products and how they they enact change um, and then for, for Laura um, this report uh, is very thorough and uh, certainly can't cover every policy recommendation but I really was some um, what popped out to me was the um, words that adaptation is the only hope for Africa um, there's a really good example on uh, seeds, changing seed varieties um, for, for you know, lack of water in drought areas, but what would be some other sort of adaptation um, changes, whether they be in transportation or in entrepreneurship, that uh, come to the top of your mind? Okay, great. Okay. This woman, uh, two rows back, please. Hi, I'm Lucy Mize. I'm the head of the health team for the Asia Bureau for USAID. Mm. And uh, I'm curious uh, about how this index could be used at the subnational, but also at the third pillar of people level. Oh. Because one of the issues, for example, after a recent tsunami in Indonesia, they found that the early warning system had been cannibalized and had not yet been maintained appro appropriately by the government. So, and then yesterday, NPR had an interesting article about the United States and the weather that is affecting people's behavior because of all the floods of a century. So how do you get the knowledge from an index like this to be applied 
by people in vulnerable populations. Thank you very much. Gen Sir. Hi, I'm uh, Patrick Kelly from uh, Bluemont International. We're actually uh, working with KPMG uh, on a DFID-funded uh, resiliency program in Mali, so uh, quite, ap uh, quite applicable. Um, Two-part question. One is just to echo this gentleman's question about how readiness is uh, measured at the subnational level. And the second part of the question is uh, more for Mr. Messner here. Um, in uh, the Fragile State Index, uh, which indicators uh, speak more to uh, climate shocks, if any? Okay, great. Okay, let's just ask different folks if they can respond to it. They don't have to answer to everything. But what, Julie, why don't I start with you? Okay, so um, the legacy of knowledge. So, I mean, I, I think I can answer that in three ways. First of all, yeah, I really like the Unbreakable report as well. And what we saw in, out of that report is that we very quickly got some requests from countries who wanted deeper dives, right? So Philippines in particular. How do you dig into some of the things that came up in that report? That report was basically looking at resilience um, as well. And so you, you get these requests to go deeper, and then we can do analytical work on something that is a very specific government priority, which is fantastic. We always want to operationalize these sorts of big knowledge products, so it's like applied economics. Another the other way to do that is, as I said, through sort of turning it into um, peer groups that are willing to share knowledge across each other. So going down to the practitioner level, and you know, and one example is the Sustainable Banking Network and IFC, which is one of my favorites. It's looking at ESG investing, including climate um, investing, and that's a voluntary group of regulators and banking associations that just get together and say, we're gonna group ourselves in emerging. We're just starting to think about this. Um, you know, countries that are advanced, um, countries that are sort of in the middle, and how do you move from one to another? So that, you know, based on this kind of data and, and these metrics. And then the third thing is I have to put a shout out to uh, our next big flagship, the team that did the Unbreakable Report has a new one coming out on June 20th, which is called Lifelines. Don't and make it a Netflix night, it's clear, <laughs> clear the calendar. It's June 20th, put it on your calendar. Yeah. It's about resilient infrastructure. So for the first time trying to look mm. at not just the, you know, the absolute direct, the direct costs of how natural disasters destroy infrastructure, but what does it really mean for well-being? So digging into um, how critical infrastructure is important for well-being of firms and households and communities. So I, keep an eye out for that. I need to actually follow up with you about that. That sounds really interesting. I'll connect me with the team, please. Sure. Great. Um, okay, uh, Alexis, any comments you want to respond to from any of the comments that were or questions that were put yeah, out there? Yeah, I think there is a few really interesting ones and all great points. I mean, I think one when you talk about adaptation is you know really looking at some of those other government systems. So I was lucky enough to just return from a trip to Vietnam where I was joined by other chief innovation officers from other uh, major countries, and we really got to work with the Vietnamese government. And what was so interesting is that they had such a uh, strong recognition that their resiliency, that their kind of future state, all of the things that they wanted to look at really ultimately had in this nexus of around talent, right, and around people. So whether that was how their higher education system, workforce development, but really this idea of ingraining and thinking about resiliency as an element, you know, all throughout someone's individual life, thus kind of bringing strength to a nation, I think was one thing that was mm. interesting. The second one, and Dan, I'm actually gonna refer back to another piece that um, you guys did that I really was so impressed mm. by, because I think it's a nice bookend to this. A lot of times when we talk about indices and metrics, you know, we forget the fact that like, this is about people. I mean, I, I look, 
kudos to my, my USAID colleague, because it really is, right? I mean, even for myself, I'm in a moment of my own journey and my own self-reliance, right? And what does that mean and what is my relationship? Mm -hmm. And the piece that you did, Dan, which I think is the nice bookend, is really that piece around demand-driven development. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to ask ourselves as development professionals, while we're seeing all this meta-level information, right? And it's telling us really important trends, really important elements of business intelligence, at the same time, you know, what does it actually mean to also be in a moment where you know, demand-driven development, the connectivity to the end-state customer, and notice that I did not use the word beneficiary. I used the word end-state customer, mm. and the fact that someone can have agency and preference and choice, and how does that come alive when we think about resiliency? I really think that when I think about my own personal resiliency, it comes into shape based on the fact that I have choice, that I have options, that I have alternatives, right? The more I have of those things, the more resilient ultimately I am. And so I really do think that bringing these two bookends together about how we think about demand-driven development, the voice of the customer, especially in times of emergency, right? Because when you think about emergency, conflict, um, you know, crisis, these are those moments where people become hyper-beneficiaries, right? Because they've lost so much that you know, almost anything is helpful, and that's not actually true, right? So thinking about how in these moments, how as we're applying this information, we can actually give agency and power and influence at that person level, at that customer level, is something that I'm really excited about hopefully seeing more of the industry bring together. Great, great. Laura, I know there were several questions that are directed to you. Well, let me start with this issue, how to bring this to the subnational level, which of course is, I mean, as I said, is a challenge. Um, so this report is based on two things. I mean, pre-existing data, and so uh, a precondition to be able to do that would be that this data is available at a disaggregate level, at a subnational level, and that uh, we need to check. The second part, which is easier, is actually the, the people that we actually go and interview, and those can be brought down to, for example, I'm thinking about, I don't know, Brazil at the state level. We can present that, uh, you know, comparing different states and how they are. So that is one thing. Uh, but obviously, the other part that is, uh, you know, important, because it, it's true that it's important to have data disaggregated at the subnational level because in some cases the differences are incredible and the totality of the country and again I want to bring Brazil as an example of something that I know of a large federal state uh, what speaks to Sao Paulo clearly doesn't speak to Minas Gerais and to other states so you really need to be able to have a different vision but what you need to be sure before you embark on this exercise is that you do have champions at the subnational level that then are going to actually make a good use of that because otherwise I mean it's uh, it's a little bit of a uh, of an effort the question that I like very much is uh, you know Ultimately, all that we are doing is about people. So uh, how do we make this a product that is actually useful and helpful? And I have to say, I'm a big believer that people own their governments and the decision that the government make. Sometimes they do not know actually how to measure uh, the value and the performance of these governments because they do not have the right information and the right indicators. So something that actually 
brings in a consolidated way and simplifies the metrics that you may need to use in your mind to understand whether the government is acting in your own interest vis-a-vis -vis climate change, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, establishing the right safety net, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, having in place a regulatory framework that facilitates uh, you know, investment which then creates job, which creates opportunities, which creates you know, an improvement in your living condition. Yeah. That is something that I feel it's a powerful tool. And my um, next challenge then, as I'm thinking ahead, would be how to create a companion that goes together with this piece and that actually makes them understand which are the issues where they should actually focus their attention and that uh, you know, will be helpful for civil society organizations, for advocacy organizations to actually uh, be vocal, raise the right argument when they are negotiating with their governments, and uh, make the right points that actually defend their own interests and pushes the government in the right direction. So that might very well be uh, an, interesting, an interesting next step for us. Great. JJ, uh, I know there were several things, several questions directed to you, and I know you'll have some thoughts. Yeah, um, two things. First of all, uh, on the uh, question as to whether indices can be more deterrence than, than good, um, I think it's a fair criticism. Uh, but on the, the other hand, I would also contend that uh, indices like these at the high level are not really telling us anything that we don't know already. So to that extent, I don't think anyone will open up this report or the Fragile States Index and say, wow, I didn't know Somalia was a fragile state. Right. Uh, and, and, equally, <laughs> and equally, I don't think they're going to open the, the report and say, wow, Switzerland, oh, maybe I will actually go for a vacation this year. Right. So I, I, I don't think it's really telling us anything we don't know at that high level. And, and what's interesting is the number of similarities in the findings. So. For example, that I think in, in sub-Saharan Africa, I think you've ranked Somalia as the, uh, as the, the least prepared. Uh, that lines very much with the Fragile States Index. You've also ranked, on the other hand, uh, Mauritius as like a spoiler the, alert. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. As Mauritius is the, the, the most prepared in sub-Saharan Africa. And actually, in the Fragile States Index this year, Mauritius became the first African country on our index to enter the very stable uh, category, so that, that, that aligns. But what I would say is these indices are very much a, a mirror uh, to, uh, to, to reality. And maybe another way of putting it is it's actually a high zoom camera because you're able to really look in at a very high definition. So the question should not really be uh, whether we should say, for example, invest here, but how can we invest here? How should we invest here in a way that is sensitive to the level of risk that, that, may, uh, that may present itself? Uh, for the IFC, for example, for their uh, new long-term strategy, I think that their, uh, their aim, their goal is to move from 5% uh, investment in their portfolio in fragile and conflict-affected situations to 20%. That is, going to, that is a great move. It's a great move. It's going to come with a certain level of political risk and social risk and environmental risk. And those are the things that we need to be focusing on. Those are things that we need to be measuring. And I should also say that as much as you can look at indices and think of them as maybe deterrents, they're also demonstrating where there is improvement. So on the Fragile States Index, when we first 
published it 15 years ago, uh, Sierra Leone was in the top 10 most fragile countries. Now, I think it's broken out of the alert category. Mm. That shows that uh, progress, you know, can happen. progress can happen. It takes a long time, but these metrics are really important in being able to demonstrate how that That's happens. Good. One other quick point I want to make is that one thing that all of these indices have in common, and it's already been uh, addressed by Laura already, is that our fundamental metric that we all share is becoming less and less relevant, and that's the nation state. As a metric of measurement, it's, uh, it's the, the worst metric we can use, but for all the others. And to that extent, we don't yet have a good way of measuring in a consistent fashion, in a comparable fashion, uh, issues of fragility and resilience at the subnational and transnational level. I would say that if you if you really want to look at, say, the um, somewhere like the Lake Chad Basin, if you're looking country by country, it's going to be a waste of your time. You need to be looking transnationally, and currently we don't have the right definitions to be able to do that in a reliable way. At the other end of the spectrum, cities are becoming more and more important as a metric of measurement. If you look at a country like Nigeria versus the city of Lagos, the level of resilience between the city of Lagos versus the country as a whole is starkly different and in very different ways. And so to that extent, um, uh, they're, they're really, I, I think that for all of us in the, the index industry, uh, I think that we, big index, uh, we, uh, we, we need to really think carefully about how we can better tailor those, those findings. Great. Look, I think we should probably end it here. I know there's several folks that are going to want to talk to folks, the panelists, bilaterally. I want to give folks a chance to do it. Thank you very much. Thank you, KPMG, and congratulations. Thanks, JJ. I really.